Well, good morning. We are continuing our, our, our series uh, called New Life. So grab your Bibles, open them up. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 uh, this morning. And if you don't have a Bible for some reason, I encourage you to download one on your smartphone. Um, uh, there's, there's apps available for that as well. I want to tell you about a man um, who, he was, uh, on his deathbed, he was, he was going to die. He knew it. And he, uh, he called his doctor, he called his lawyer, and he called his pastor in for kind of a short consult before this time, of, as this time approached. And so he called them in and he said, look, I know, I know that you can't take this world with you. You can't take the material possessions of this world with you, but I'm going to do it anyways. And so he handed each of them an envelope with $100,000 in it, and he asked them to do this. He said, would you, would you commit to before they bury me, you know, as you come up and visit the casket, just slide this into the casket, and then when they bury me, I'm going to take, take it with me. And so uh, he gives them the, the envelopes of the, of, of the money, and they uh, go to the funeral, and the envelopes go in the casket. Later, they're, they're, they're meeting together, and they're talking about uh, what, what they, you know, the, the, the life of this person, and all these things. And then uh, the doctor stops, and he says, you know, I, I got a confession I, I just have to make, you know, between the three of us. I, I took $25,000 out of that envelope, and, you know, look, I'm building a new clinic for people in a, in a, in a neighborhood that really need it. So I, just, I, I, just, I took $25,000 out, I put $75,000 in the envelope, I put it in there. And then the lawyer kind of had this deep sigh, and he said, I, I, t- I too have a confession to make. I took $50,000 out of the envelope, you know, I've, I'm putting an office that's going to do all pro bono work in, in, in a neighborhood that... that often needs lawyers but can't afford it. And so I, I only put $50,000 in. And the pastor, of course, was appalled at what had happened. And he says, I cannot believe what you guys have done. I put a check for all $100,000 in the envelope and put it in the casket. <laughs> Some of you already took a little, it took a second. Oh, wait, he put a check. Oh, because he can't cash the check. He took, oh, oh, man, my wife just got it. All right. <laughs> it's early, I understand. Uh, hey, let's, let's pray before we dig into God's word this morning. Dear God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for this letter that you have written, uh, that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And, and Lord, as we look at it, I pray that our hearts would be encouraged this morning uh, as we look into your word, that we would be challenged, Lord, but that we would be refreshed by what you would have for us this morning. And Lord, we thank you so much for the grace that you've given us in Jesus Christ. And I pray all these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. We have uh, three core values here at Grace, and this is a kind of a fun day because we get to celebrate some things. Um, and, and we're always celebrating, of course, when we come together on Sunday morning. Uh, but we have three core values. And what, the first of those core values is gospel impact. And, uh, and, and we have the McKinney's here, and they're, they're part of that gospel impact. They're part of bringing the gospel to people who are in desperate need of Jesus. And, and we get to celebrate that, be with them, and, and, and be excited about, about our partnership with, with them. And, and that's really, really amazing. Uh, the second is, is growth in community. And I don't know if you realize this, but there's a lot going on at Grace today. 
There's a whole ton of stuff this weekend that is in these past couple weeks have been going on. We had VBS, which was amazing, um, um, and all those things. Of course, when we gather together on Sunday morning, that is a growth and community kind of thing. The ladies are gathering together this afternoon and, and are going to be uh, growing in community together. And, and so there's all these things. And of course, we'll be gathering some of us with the McKinney's right after the second service this morning. So it is a really, really busy time uh, here at Grace and, and as we encourage one another towards love and good deeds. But that's the second of our core values. The third of our core, va- core values is gener- generosity. And uh, I already mentioned that last year after going to Costa Rica, we came back. You guys helped pay off that, that mortgage for that church. And $1,300 is probably not close to what some of your guys' mortgage payment is in a month. And uh, yet for them, it was a huge deal. And they were, you know, praying from month to month that God would be able to provide just enough for them to make that payment. And yet all of, all of you guys came together and said, we're going to take care of that for them. And, and that ministry continues to thrive. And that's because of, of the generosity that you have. But also, during our VBS, we had our, our, ki- our kids raise $700 for Partners International. And uh, that, that w- the money went to two places. One was buying these cows for, um, for these widows and things that needed, needed cows. And that was a way of, for them to not only pr- provide for themselves and things like that. And so, so we bought, so that was enough to buy one cow. One, just... What? Okay. <laughs> Why do I have the wrong numbers? Anyways, so, so we raised $1,000 and one cow is 700 And then we raised enough to, for, to buy some books for, this, uh, for, for, for these libraries being set up. Anyways, now I'm, now I'm confused because I don't know if I have the right numbers or not. But this, I'm going to tell you the numbers I have, I think, which might be wrong. So, <laughs> so we're just going to go with it. But we had all the, all the kids help raise all this money. And then, and then last Sunday, we just let you guys know and said, hey, if you still want to give to that, you can. Um, here's, what I, here's what I know, that it's over $1,300 was given towards that. And what's, what's really cool is on top of that, a family came along and said, we want to match whatever's given. And so that'll be doubled. And so that, that's just a really fun, cool thing that we, you guys are doing to, to support these ministries um, and, and generosity here at Grace. Um, it's, but it, here's the thing about generosity. It's not just one of our core values. It's not just something that we came up with and we just went, hey, this is a good idea. It sounds good, you know, or, or we can market this really well. That's not, that's not why, th- why, we can't, why generosity is one of our core values. It's a biblical principle, and it's an important one. And as we come to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8 and 9, it becomes the centerpiece of that text that we're going to look at this morning. It is, it is an important part of, of that text. To recap What's been happening with 2 Corinthians is this. You know, you have Paul, and he writes 1 Corinthians to the, to the church in Corinth. He writes this letter, and in that letter, he, he has to confront them about some things. And, and he later would write a letter that we don't have. We, we often refer to it as the severe letter or the letter of tears. And we know that it was dealing with some church discipline kinds of things. And, that it, and it created tension between Paul and the church in Corinth. Somewhere... Somewhere along the way, this tension caused enough conflict that, that it had to be repaired. The relationship between Paul and the church in Corinth had to be repaired on some, le- on some level. And in the first letter, he actually came to them and said, Hey, look, I'm going around to these churches, and I'm asking them to, to, bring, to give a collection of money for the church in Jerusalem. 
because the church of Jerusalem was poor. They were oppressed. You have to think about this. This wasn't that many years after Jesus had been put on a cross. And many of the people who were in power when Jesus was put on the cross and who were responsible for that were, were likely still in power these, these many years later. And so this church in, in Jerusalem where Jesus was put on a cross had began to grow. And all of a sudden there is this ire, if you will, towards this church. And it would impact their, their economics as well. It wasn't just about, oh, we don't like them, but they wouldn't hire them for work. They wouldn't go to their businesses. They would have a hard time making money to provide for themselves. And so you have this church in Jerusalem, which is very, very poor. And as Paul went through on his missionary journey and began to talk to churches, he was asking churches to, to give a collection so that the, the church in Jerusalem could do the things it needed to do to do good ministry. Well, he, he asked the church in Corinth about that in 1 Corinthians. But as time went on, as the relationship tension increased, as, as the difficulty increased between Paul and the church in Corinth, apparently that had stopped. The church in Corinth hadn't followed through on that. And whatever their reasoning, whether it was they looked at Paul and said, well, we're not sure if we can really trust him because he said he was going to come and then he didn't come when he said he was going to come. And then they had these other voices that began to speak into their uh, congregation saying, hey, you look, you can't trust Paul. And maybe they began to listen to the wrong voices. Whatever the case, they had maybe stopped this collection for the church in Jerusalem. And so we arrive at this point in 2 Corinthians where Paul had defended his ministry. He had said, wait a minute, you've got this all wrong. You ought not be listening to those other people. Here's why. He defends his ministry. And it appears as if maybe when Titus came back to Paul and, and, and brought this positive report that we've read about in the last couple chapters, that now things seem to start, the, the relationship is being reconciled on some level between Paul and the church in Corinth. And so he begins to write them, and he writes them specifically about this collection that's being taken up for the church in Jerusalem. And he starts in chapter 8, verse 1, and he says this. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the, in the service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since, but since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Paul was supposed to go to Corinth after uh, some time in Macedonia. Now here's the, the thing about the churches in Macedonia. We're talking about you know, Berea and Philippi and Thessalonica, those churches, and those churches were poor churches. They were not churches of means. They were not wealthy churches. They would have been pretty poor. And, and Paul had 
gone through and, and, and been in those places and, and, and encouraged them to raise up a collection. And they, they excelled in it. They, they, they rose to the occasion and they began to take up collections for the church in Jerusalem. At that time, Paul was supposed to go to Corinth, but he ended up not going to Corinth. And as if, you, if you remember what we've been talking about in these past chapters, some of that has been because he knew it was going to be this really difficult trip and he wanted to work some of these things out so that when he went, it could be an encouraging and positive and uplifting experience. And so, and so he had begun to work on the relationship side of things. And so he had talked to, so he begins to, to write this letter and he says, he says, look church, the churches in Macedonia, they're, they're, they're not doing well financially, but yet they were generous. And so I want you to know that. And I know that you guys, you, the church in Corinth, you guys excel in all of these other things. So also excel in generosity. And as we look at this text, he starts it out and he says this, and now brothers and sisters, we want you to know about, I want you to listen to this, the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. What we, we need to recognize is this, that generosity is a grace given by God. Generosity is a grace given by God. We often think about generosity in these terms. We look at generosity and go, well, generosity is something that I give away. Like when, when I give something away, I'm being generous, right? And that's not wrong. It's true. But when you begin to think about it in the way the text talks about it, that generosity is actually a grace given to the churches by God. In other, words, in other words, God is the source of that. It's a grace given to us when we are generous, when we express the generosity of God, that that's a grace given to us. That it's actually something beneficial for each one of us. Sometimes we think about it in different terms. And I think Paul does a really good job in this text of helping us to understand that it, generosity isn't as much about what we give away, although that's how we often process it. It's just as much about what we have received as a blessing from God, as a grace from God. Generosity is the opportunity that we have to express that grace. And I'm going to read it again. I know I already read it, but twice as a matter of fact. But I'm going to read it a third time, verse 2. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. In their what? Severe trial... And in the midst of their extreme poverty, generosity rose up. Sometimes we have this idea that those who can be generous are those who are wealthy. Generosity is for the wealthy. That's, that's sometimes how we process things. But that's not what this text says. This text doesn't say that at all. This, this text actually says the churches of Macedonia, they were extreme, in extreme poverty. They were experiencing severe trial, and yet generosity welled up in them. It wasn't about their wealth. It was about something else. It was about their heart. See, joy and extreme poverty lead to generosity. The generosity wasn't of their own doing, right? It wasn't like the people of Macedonia just said, hey, look at us, look at how much we can give. As a matter of fact, there's never any numbers mentioned in, the, in, this, in this text. He never says, hey, look, the churches in Macedonia gave this much church in Corinth, therefore you ought to be able to give this much. He's not trying to pit them against each other in that sense. He doesn't bring up the amount. He doesn't bring up the numbers so that he can guilt the church in Corinth into, into giving or outgiving the churches in Macedonia. 
we need to understand that at its source, generosity is a grace given by God. It's not an expression of our means, but of the heart. And more specifically, a heart that has been infected and transformed by the grace of God. I want to tell you about a church, and you're going to think I'm contradicting myself for a minute here, but hang in there. I'm not. I want to tell you about a church in Wyoming, Michigan. They made uh, the news recently. USA Today did an article on them, and, and many other um, media organizations talked about this church in, in, in Wyoming, Michigan. And uh, what this church did is, is they purchased $1.8 million worth of medical bills from their local hospitals. They recognized that for many, these medical bills were, were bringing people to the, to the brink of bankruptcy or even bringing them into bankruptcy. And they had the resources, so they, would, they, they decided, hey, we're going to minister to our community in this way. We've got the resources. We're going to purchase $1.8 million worth of medical bills, and then we're going to forgive the bills. In other words, $1.8 million of medical bills, it probably didn't get paid off. I don't know exactly what, you know, that you purchase debt, and you always purchase it at a discount, but I don't know what that discount was. But as soon as you purchase the note, right, then basically what happens is you become the bank. So the church became the bank in a sense, but, they, but instead of saying, hey, now you need to pay us the debt back, they just said, forget it, it's done, it's paid off, we've bought the debt, it's over with. $1.8 million. And people were all excited about it, and they were posting, and they should be. Now what would happen if I came and I said, hey, Grace, let's pay off $1.8 million of medical bills next week. Yeah, you should laugh a little bit, right? We can't do that. We don't have those kinds of resources. I think this is one of the mistakes that, that people sometimes make. As a matter of fact, in Mark chapter 12, Jesus, it, it says this, and, and we don't, I don't think we have this on the screen for you, but in verse 41 it says this, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. This should influence how we think about generosity it's not about the amount the church in wyoming michigan i have no idea what their budget is i didn't i didn't go look up what the reserves are i'm not really concerned about those things they may have put everything they had into paying off those medical bills i am not going to sit here and to judge whether they they are generous or not they appear generous but here's the thing sometimes what happens is a church like us looks at them and says we can't do that therefore we're not generous Right, Or what the world does is the world looks at the amount and says, look at how much they've put in out of their wealth they've put in, right? And we're not a poor church by any means, but we don't have that kind of wealth. And so sometimes they will look at a, at a church that doesn't have that much or a person, and here's what happens. We do this with ourselves, right? We begin to compare based on the number. But when Jesus talked about it, he, didn't, he talked about the, as, the amounts as if they were almost insignificant. He wasn't concerned about the amount. He was concerned about what? The heart. 
This woman gave what she had. She gave out of her poverty. And Jesus recognized that. In verse 3, that I've already read in in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, it says this, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their own ability. As much as they were able. See, there's an appeal in the text to the means that they had. In other words, sometimes what we we have often is we have people that that will stand up and will say, listen, you ha- if, if you give, God will open up the storehouse and he will bless you. And, and the inference is that if you give financially, that God will give you a whole bunch more. Financially. Can I just tell you that's not, that's not often how it happens. That's, that's not what scripture teaches. As a matter of fact, Paul here says they, they considered what they were able to give. We ought not be foolish with our money, in other words with our finances. We ought not to give what we don't have. If you give and you're doing it on a credit card, that's a really bad idea. You don't have that, right? There is a a reference made in this text. Paul says give, but they gave according to what they had. And now it it does say at the end of that, it says, and even beyond their ability. But what, what I see in that, what I think Paul is trying to communicate to us is that they had a sacrificial heart in their generosity. That they stretched themselves in their generosity. And then he goes on in verse 7. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you. And then that last phrase, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. There is a sense in which we ought to excel. Now, I don't know about you, but I hear the word excel and I start to think about things in different terms, right? Because it's not necessarily something that comes naturally. If you're going to excel in something, you have to work at it. You have to put effort into it, right? It's not, it's, it's not that which comes naturally. You just kind of do that. There's a lot of talented people in this world that never live up to their potential because they, they think their, their talent will just do everything, right? You might have a generous heart, but Paul goes beyond that and says, excel in it. The word that, that is translated excel has this idea, go above and beyond in it. Work hard at it, in other words. Generosity is a change of the heart, but it is something that we ought to foster and grow in our heart. Now I want to caution you in three ways this morning as we talk about this. Because I think there's three things that often happen, especially, you know, a preacher gets up, he starts talking about money, and some of us don't react very well to that. And I understand I understand, but the text talks about money. It's what I got to do, right? I don't, I don't really have a choice. I, I look at the text and I preach the text. The text talks about money and generosity. That's what I'm doing, talking about money and generosity. Three things that I want to caution you on. The first one is this. You might be playing the comparison game. You might be compare, playing the comparison game. You might be walking around grace at times, and you might be thinking, thinking, oh, I, can, I could never be as generous as that person or that person. You have in your own mind how, how generous everybody else is. And can I just be honest with you? You don't know, first of all. You don't know how generous or not generous they are. And you might be sitting there thinking that I'm not, as, I'm not generous enough. I need to be more generous. And you, you play the comparison game from that perspective. But you might flip it too. 
you might also be walking around thinking, wow, I'm, I'm really generous. Like, I give a lot. That's sin. That's pride. That's arrogance. Either way, the comparison game does not, it's, it's, like, it's like going to the casino, right? Who always wins? The house always wins, right? At least that's what I'm told, all right? Not that any of you would know anything about that. But that's what I'm told. The house always wins. In other words, the game is rigged. When you start to compare and you start to compare your finances and your generosity, you will lose that every single time. You will lose it. Either you will put put guilt on yourself or you will have pride and arrogance. Whichever it ends up being, you lose. Stop playing the comparison game. That's caution number one. Caution number two. Fear often rules our finances. Fear often rules our finances. You see, we live as if we actually own the things we, own, we think we own. We, we, live, we live often as if we think we are in charge of this world, that we can somehow control the things that happen in this world. Can I just tell you something? You are not in control. What we often do is we often build up a facade for ourselves, right? We lie to ourselves. Oh, I'm in control. We do things like we get all, all this money in there, 401k or, or whatever it is, right? Our investments, and here we're going to invest in real estate. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to do this other thing. We're going to invest in all of these ways. Can I just say 2008? Do you remember what happened in 2008? Because I remember what happened in 2008, and it hurt, <laughs> right? The housing market crashed. You know what? Stocks go up and stocks go down. I don't know if you know this, but all that has to happen is, is President Trump tweets something out and the stocks go. <laughs> you think you're in control? Think again. Natural disasters happen. You're not in control. Now here, what am I saying? Don't save? No, I'm not. I'm not saying don't save. Am I saying don't be smart with your finances? No, I'm not. I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. Here's what I'm saying though. We often live in fear of what might happen with with our finances. And so we try to live as if we can safeguard our future simply by having all the right dollars and cents in all the right places. And I'm just here to tell you there are no guarantees. You can make good financial decisions. You can save money. I'm not saying don't have a 401k. I am just saying you ought not live in fear of what happens to this because God is sovereign over everything. And everything belongs to him anyway. Including your money. It ain't yours. If you think that you're in control, you're not. You know, Jesus, and we did a series on the Sermon on the Mount not that long ago. But in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, he says this, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink. It's a financial issue. Or about your body. What you will wear, that's a financial issue. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? In other words, God will provide your needs. Now, your needs may not be, th- may not be what you think your needs are, right? You, don't, you probably don't need to live in the house you live in. You can probably get by on much less. 
You probably don't need to drive the car you drive. You could get by on much less. You probably don't need to wear the clothes you wear. You could probably get by on much less. Yeah? God will provide what? Our wants? No. God will provide what? Our needs. It's a difference, isn't there? We often live in fear when it comes to our finances. The third caution is this. You forget to consider your means. You forget to consider your means. We can often give more than we think, but we can never be generous with what we don't have. Right? We cannot be generous. God has not granted us something, then we can't give it away. If he has not put it within our means, within our grasp, then we can't give it away. If we don't have it, we can't give it. Paul makes a reference to means here. It's important. We should consider that. We should think about that. But, but we often, I would say the vast majority of the time, can give much more than we think we can give. God has actually given us more than we think he's given us. He's given us more to be generous with than what we thought. So well, generosity, is, it's a grace given by God, right? We must consider the source of, of the grace given to us. And Paul does in verse, in, verse eight of, uh, in verse 8 of chapter 8. He says, I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. See, here's the truth we ought to find in that the grace of generosity is found in the gracious generosity of Jesus. The grace of generosity is found in the gracious generosity of Jesus. See, generosity is a gospel-centered theology. It comes from Jesus. It comes from his sacrifice. It comes from him being rich and becoming poor. What's, What's he talking about? The incarnation. As a matter of fact, you go back to the Psalms, and here's what the Psalm says about God's wealth in, in Psalm 50, and I'm only reading a portion of it because it goes on. It says this, I have no need of a bull from y- your stall or of goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. In other words, in the beginning, what? God created the universe. He created it all. He holds the stars in his hands. He probably doesn't even use his hand. He probably uses his pinky. He holds it all. It's all his. It all belongs to him. If you think think God needs what you have to offer him, you've got the whole thing wrong. God doesn't need what you have to offer him. And in Psalm 50, that's what he's telling Israel. He's like, I don't need your sacrifices. I don't need it to eat. If I'm hungry, I don't need to tell you about it. I own everything. It's all mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, all the sheep, all the goats, all the everything. It's all mine. I own it. I own the planets. I own, I own the stars. I own everything. It all belongs to God. And we believe in a triune God, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three in person, one in essence, Right? 
We believe, so Jesus was there at the beginning. All that, all that was created was created by him and it was created through him according to Colossians, right? In John chapter 1, in the beginning was the what? The word, the logos. He was there in the beginning. He was there at the time that all things were created. The eternal son of God created all things along with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need it. He owns it all. That's why generosity is a grace given to us by him. He's the source of generosity. And though he owned everything, Jesus gave it up when he took on human flesh. Amen? He gave it up. That's the wealth, the rich. He was rich and he became poor for our sake. For our sake. Generosity is a grace given by God. The grace of generosity is found in the gracious Gracious generosity of Jesus. It's found in the gospel itself. So we know generosity is a grace. We know the source of generosity is in the gospel itself. But there is a method to generosity as well. And Paul addresses this. He says this. Remember this. Chapter 9, verse 6. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves what? A cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in what? Every good work. You get what you give. There's a generosity principle here, isn't there? I want to tell you, uh, Andy Stanley shares the story of Jeremiah Clary. Jeremiah Clary was a farmer in the panhandle of Oklahoma. And he had, he had gone there to, you know, raise his family, to provide. The soil was supposed to be wonderful and great. It was the late 20s, late 1920s. And he goes and he, he begins to build his farm and he begins to, to plant and and to, and to grow crops, and, and to make a living, and, to, and to, to supply the needs of his family. Of course, you, probably if you know history, you, you know what soon happened. Right around 1931, the rain stopped, didn't it? It stopped coming, and, and that rich topsoil that promised so much for all, for all of these farmers that had come to the Midwest and decided they wanted to, to develop their farms and to grow their crops, all of a sudden that rich topsail just blew away as the winds picked up and the lands dried out and the nutrients of the ground were no longer available. And Jeremiah Clary, year after year, would plant only to see his seed blow away in the wind. And he'd plant the next year. And it'd blow away in the wind. And he'd plant the next year. And it'd blow away in the wind. Year after year. And every time he planted, it was a month's worth of salary. And every time he didn't harvest, that month's worth of salary was not there. Well, after five years, and losing much of his seed, he's sitting there looking at his barn, and looking at the seed that he had, he had put together, the seed that he had worked on, and and, and, and it was his last seed. And he began to look at it, and he began to think, maybe I shouldn't plant. Maybe this is the year, I, maybe I shouldn't plant. I mean, five years now, every year it blows away. Every year it doesn't produce a crop. Every year I can't supply 
need for my family. Every year I've got to find a different way to support my family because it's not working out. Every year I've got this seed. What do I do? Do I keep it? Do I hold on to it? And he began to grow an emotional attachment to the seed that was in his storehouse, that was in his barn, and he wanted to keep it. And the time came, and it was time to plant. And he looked at it, and some of the other farmers began to plant. And it was about, he was about, it was about the time when he was going to miss that window of planting, and he was going to miss the opportunity to actually harvest. And he had to make a decision. We do the same thing all the time. We start to hang on to things, to stuff, to finances money. We grow an emotional attachment to it instead of putting it to work and putting it to use. Because the reality is, as long as that seed stayed in his storehouse, it was never going to produce a harvest. It was just going to sit there and do nothing. And he had to make a decision. Honestly, I don't know what decision he made. But Paul uses that idea of sowing in this text. The idea is this, that if you don't sow, you don't harvest. Nevertheless, Paul says this, we, we have to give not under compulsion. I want to make something abundantly clear this morning. If you feel guilty about giving, don't give. If you feel like it's under compulsion ever, don't do it. Because God's after your heart and not your money. That is... The metaphor Paul uses, though, he uses this idea of planting and reaping. And there is a principle there. There is this idea of if you don't give, if you don't sow, you don't harvest. Verse 8, chapter 9. God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in what? Every good work. Jump down to verse 10. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. This is the thing that some people come along and they say this, hey, if you will just give financially that God will restore your finances and not only will he restore them, that he'll give you more. Can I just tell you, that's not what that text says. What does that text say? That God will, that, that, that the, the, the harvest is what? Good works and righteousness. It's good works and righteousness. I, am, I will never promise you that God will give you back all kinds of finances, finances if, you, if you are generous with what you have. I, I can't promise you. I don't, I'm not in control. God's in control. He might. He often does, but he doesn't always. I don't know his mind on that. I don't know who he's going to do that with and who he's not. Sometimes he sees generous people and he says, wow, I'm going to give more to them so that they can be more generous. But the purpose is also always generosity. It's never so that they can just live a plush lifestyle. Right? It's works of righteousness. It's good works. That's the reward. That's where the joy comes from. That's where the cheerfulness comes from. Generosity is a gospel principle but it doesn't guarantee that you will be rewarded financially for being generous. I can't guarantee that. But it does say that you will grow in every good work and that your harvest will be a, a one of righteousness. So here's the reality. Here's the principle of all of this. The generous giving of the redeemed is a reflection of the grace of Jesus Christ. 
the generous giving of the redeemed is a reflection of the grace of Jesus Christ. That's why we're generous. Because Jesus was generous with us. Because he came down to earth. Because he took on human flesh. Because he went to the cross. Because he sacrificed everything. Because he spilled his blood. Because he went to the grave. Because he resurrected. And there will be a wealth. There will be streets of gold. But it is in eternity future. It is in the new heavens and the new earth. It, may, it is not now. The generous giving of the redeemed is a reflection of the grace of Jesus Christ. So what does this mean for you and me? Well, it means four things. Probably means more than that, but it means at least these four things. The first is this. Recognize that our generosity is a grace given to us by God, and we ought to embrace it. Two, give generously and excel, slash work hard at the grace of giving. Three, give according to your means, but don't use your means as an excuse not to be generous. Four, generosity is the seed, but the harvest is righteousness and good deeds. It's not a get-rich-quick scheme. Amen? Let's pray. You got to thank you so much for your goodness and your grace, for your love, for your generosity.